0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Benjamin Percy, author of the new novel, The Unfamiliar Garden. Percy has won a Whitting Award, a Plimpton Prize, two Pushcart Prizes, an NEA Fellowship, and the Radio Award for Best Scripted Podcast. He also writes Wolverine and X-Force for Marvel Comics. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, The Unfamiliar Garden, how would you describe the novel?
1: Well, this is part two in a series called The Comet Cycle. But as that heading indicates, The Comet Cycle, uh, this is not your standard series. Uh, All of these books take place simultaneously. And so you can read them in any particular order, Uh, they're standalone novels. And the inciting incident for all of them, the trigger event for all of them, is a comet. A comet comes streaking through the solar system, the planet spins through the debris field, and new elements are introduced to our world that upend the laws of physics, geology, biology, that create chaos in the geopolitical theater, that, you know, change things up in a pretty dramatic way when it comes to the the weapons sector and the energy sector. And, you know, and this is a very Marvel sort of thing for me to say, creates a new dawn of heroes and villains. (laughs) Uh, So that's how the cycle works. Uh, You know, there's a a fire in the sky uh, and debris rains down and, and meteors and comets have, have long been associated with meteorological and human disaster. You know, tsunamis, earthquakes, droughts. In the annals of history, they've been attributed to comets. Uh, you know, in 44 BC, Caesar's assassinated. His soul is said to ride away with a comet burning overhead. In 684 AD, when Halley's comet passed by, the Black Death broke out. And and in literature, you know, some of and, and in film, some of my favorite narratives they've They've drawn upon this, you know, everything from like John Carpenter's The Thing to H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space to Arthur C. Clarke's Hammer of God, to, uh, even like George Martin's Clash of Kings. Um, they rely on comets as this supernatural device, an instigator of change. And and so I'm taking this sort of age-old symbol of of our collective fear i guess you could say and and i'm using it as a way of of fantastically m- magnifying some of the anxieties that we face right now you know i've always felt like i've always felt like uh, you know the speculative stories that that last really resonate that they that they channel cultural unease in some way like everything from frankenstein and how it's born out of the industrial revolution and how uh, you know it, it's it's about the fear of science and technology, the fear of of man playing God, or how invasion of the body snatchers is actually about the Red Scare or McCarthyism, right? I'm I'm doing sort of the same thing. I'm looking at what we're afraid of right now, and and doing that Emily Dickinson thing, and by that I mean she always said to tell it slant, right? And so, so I'm telling it slant, like the the ninth medal, the first book in the series is really about. I mean it's about this this metal that rains from the sky and changes the energy sector and the weapon sector, but it's but it's also about rapacious like energy consumption and the destructive synergy of business and politics. But in the in the unfamiliar garden, right, this book takes place to circle back to your original question, this book takes place in the Seattle area, in the Olympics, in Puget Sound, and it's about this fungus that's growing there. Right. And, and, and what this book is really about, I mean, we can talk about plot details and about the family angle and everything else. But what it's really about in a way is contagion. Right. This is fungus spreads as it finds various human hosts as they take on a collective intelligence. You know, it's about the invisible enemy that rides the air. In, in the form of spores, uh, which is something that we can all uh, very anxiously relate to right now in this time of COVID.
0: Definitely. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Comet Cycle or specifically The Unfamiliar Garden?
1: Well, when it comes to The Comet Cycle as a whole, there's a few different inspirations. Um, you know, one is Comics. You mentioned that I write for Marvel, and I've written for either Marvel or DC since 2014, Um, and I grew up reading comics. In a way, comics were my definitive like, reading experience of my childhood. I I don't remember the first novel that I read. It might have been The Hobbit. It might have been The House of the Clock and Its Walls. It might have been one of the Ramona Quimby books, uh, The Mouse and the Motorcycle, or I, I don't even know. Uh, but I remember all the comics I read because I read them over and over and over again until they fell apart in my hands. And and one of the things that I always loved about comics, still love about comics, is that they are part of a shared universe. What happens in Batman carries over to Wonder Woman, carries over to Superman. And I've come to recognize, just having written them for so long, a few things. One, I Am engaging in a kind of childhood dream come true, writing Wolverine for Marvel Comics. I mean, that's my favorite comics character. It's fantastic, but but that character doesn't belong to me. I'm a custodian of the character. I'm a custodian of this Marvel universe, but I don't own it. And so, I wanted to build my own shared universe. I wanted to play in my own sandbox, and in looking at this. Sh- concept the idea of a shared universe you know i i took inspiration from mm-hmm. literary models as well like look at how lois lowry cousined her books together you've got the giver you've got the messenger you've got the sun and the gathering blue but they're not so much a quartet as they are a family or like you look at uh, elizabeth stroud she's got Olive of Kittredge and anything is possible or Kate Atkinson has life after life. And she also has a God in ruins or Marilyn Robbins has Gilead, but she also has housekeeping and, and these books, they aren't dependent on each other. Uh, but they build upon the same net narrative fabric. And if you look at what like Jeff Vandermeer is doing right now in publishing, not just with the Southern reach books, but you know, look at born. He's got like this, these novellas that are coming out of born like dead astronauts or a collection and, as well. And it's, it's He calls it a bestiary, and I really like that. Um, But the idea that you have, uh, you know, these books to kind of nudge up against each other uh, without reliance, I really like the idea of that. And, you know, part of it's a marketing strategy, too, in that books that are in a series constantly suffer from attrition. Um, But if you have books that are a series that aren't sequels, I'm trying to fight that a little bit. So that's the inspiration for the cycle as a whole. In part, I could keep going on about other inspirations, but when it comes to The Unfamiliar Garden in particular, uh, you know, a few different inspirations here as well. Um, and one of them is very personal. Since I since I read a lot of horror, and I don't know that you can call The Unfamiliar Garden a horror novel. I I figure, you know, people might refer to it as a science fiction novel or a mystery thriller. It's certainly those things, but there are some scary moments in this for sure. Uh, but since people, you know, know that I, that I write a lot of horror, they oftentimes ask me what I'm scared of. And my jokey response is clowns. I'm scared of clowns or sharks or dentists. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, and that's kind of true, but you know, there's actually only one thing that I'm actually terrified of. And that is something happening to my kids. And I know that stories, they infect readers most when there is something that the author is drawing from, something personal, something raw. And my kids right now are 12 and 15 years old. They're fine. I'm just going to give that spoiler up front. But we have had some really touch and go moments. Um, when they were younger, they each had serious problems with their breathing. Uh, and they suffered from croup every winter, multiple times in such a way that their air passages were sworn developed enough would close almost entirely. And so we were in and out of the ICU constantly. Um, and my son was almost intubated several times over. And, and, you know, one of the most horrific moments of my life was, it's the middle of a snowstorm in Milwaukee and an ambulance is loading my son into the back uh, and his lips are completely blue and he's got a ventilator on and he can't, he can't breathe. Um, and I had to follow that ambulance through through that blizzard to the hospital and I've never been more horrified in my life. Um, and that's what this book is about, in a way. It, you know, it it opens up, and you know this from reading the dust jacket copy, it opens up with a a moment where a child is lost. A child is lost, like as in vanishes. They don't know what happens to the kid. Like the comet has left behind this debris field. The earth is spinning through it. The the lights are going off in an almost like a strobe like fashion in the sky. And, And it's on this night that a couple loses their, their kid. And and you know, they, they search and they search and they search and, and the assumption is after weeks go by, after months go by, after years go by that the kid is is gone. Um and that that fissures the already troubled marriage, it, it, it cracks open this already troubled marriage and and a divorce follows, but and we can get into this a little bit more when it comes to like the technical and thematic elements of the novel. Um you know but there's the possibility of healing that arises when these two characters who are chasing very different things one of them is a mycologist who is investigating this new fungus and the other is a detective and she is investigating a series of ritualistic murders in the city you know that their their work draws them together again and there's the possibility of healing that arises not just in this union uh as they as they try to chase down what turns out to be the same mystery, but also in the possibility that maybe their kid is still alive after all. And so I was talking about contagion before as an inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. The contagion that we face right now, uh, in the world and right, a more fantastical version of that. But it's also, you know, there's that deeply personal angle, uh, just channeling that trauma, channeling that fear that, still grips me that something's going to happen to my kid.
0: Sure. Well, what was your original writing journey that led you to getting a job writing for comic books and getting novels published?
1: So everything in my career has been incremental. And everything in my career has been success that has risen out of failure. Um, you know, I, I started off writing short stories. And... And those short stories, you know, eventually climbed my way up the rungs, I guess you could say, of like publishing with smaller journals and mid-tier literary journals, and then working my way up to places like the Paris Review and and Esquire, publishing fiction with them. And then I started to get magazine gigs as a result of that. I started to write nonfiction for places like Esquire and GQ and Time and, and uh, along that path, I also, you know, got one of my first novel deals. Um, but, but this is a road that was, you know, littered with failures, thousands probably of rejections for short stories. Uh, my first short story collection in part, uh, is cold from the debris of a novel that failed. I wrote four failed novels before publishing one. I think most novelists have a similar number of drafts in the drawer. Um, And around this time, around 2009, so I had two short story collections out then. And I had my first novel coming out shortly. That was called The Wilding. Uh, Around this time, I was teaching a short story collection in one of my classes, because in my previous life, I was a big, nerdy professor. Um, So I was teaching a short story collection in one of my classes called Voodoo Heart. And this book was written by Scott Snyder. And Scott Snyder, I learned, was teaching my short story collection, Refresh, Refresh, in his own creative writing course on the East Coast. So I'm in the Midwest. He's on the East Coast. We're each teaching each other stories. We started to get into touch with one another, to talk by phone, email. And, And I learned that Scott had published a prose short story in this anthology called Who will save us now? So it was all superhero stories, but they were prose. And he gave a reading at a Barnes & Noble in New York from the anthology with a bunch of other authors. And they didn't know it, but there were some DC and Marvel editors in the crowd. And they came up afterwards and said, hey, you nerds like comics so much. Maybe you should pitch us something. So Scott did, and he started to get a little bit of heat. And in the meantime, I'm like, Scott, I love comics. Hook me up. I want to look at your pitches. I want to figure out how to do this. It never occurred to me that I could actually write comics. Um, it felt like such a just niche and, and mysterious industry. Um, and, and I started to pitch. So this is 2009, right? And I put together this massive pitch, this massive Bible called Red Moon. And it was going to be a horror series for Vertigo. Vertigo to me was like the HBO of comics, like the gold standard. And Mark. Doyle was the editor of Vertigo at the time, and he's like, dude, uh, this is cool, but I'm not going to give you a 30-issue original comic series. You've never even written a single comic. Uh, completely understandable point of view. And, and But my agent was like, you know, I really like this idea for Red Moon. Let's take it out as a novel instead. So I took that Bible, and then I wrote about 70 pages, and we took it out and and sold it and it became kind of my breakout novel. It's the thing that it's the thing that allowed me to to quit teaching and focus full-time at the keyboard. Um and but I never stopped pitching comics from 2009 onward. I was pitching, 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 pitching mostly to Mark Doyle and finally in 2014. So, you know, if this is a lesson to any you know any writers out there, it's like the stubbornness that leads to success, the bullheadedness that leads to success. Like I hear no all the time to this day. And sometimes it's just a matter of like pivoting out of that and, and, um, and, and finding, finding the right turn in the road because, you know, I, I was rejected for red moon and, and I turned it into a successful novel. I, 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 failed to sell a bunch of other novels, but I turned them into their fractured pieces into short stories. Um, I, I was able to pitch finally successfully a comic series that got picked up, uh, to Mark Doyle in 2014. And this was a two shot story that appeared auspiciously, uh, in detective comics. I I broke out with a Batman story. Like it was beyond belief. Uh, but that, that was 37 rejected pitches later. Keep that in mind, and it was also the subject matter of this story was a rejected screenplay. Uh, I had taken the screenplay out to Hollywood, and it was rejected roundly by every single studio. And I turned that into a two-issue Batman arc. I just pulled my main character out and put Bruce Wayne in, and I was off to the races. So, this is how I broke in to comics it's how i broke in to novel writing i you know heard no a thousand times until i finally heard yes
0: and can you give us an idea in case someone's listening who and you know i don't think you're the only person who has grown up just reading comics until they fall apart and and dream of writing comics can you give us an idea of like what the pitch is is it is it you know is it two pages? Is it just plot? Is it a s- sample, couple of pages of the script? Um, how does that work exactly?
1: So when I'm putting together a pitch for comics or for a TV series or for a podcast series, I, and, or for a novel, I tend to go overboard. Uh, I have written 50-page documents. Um and 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 the subtext of them always seems to be like, give this to me or else. Uh that was the case with my first opportunity to write Wolverine. Uh Axel Alonzo, who was then the editor in chief of Marvel Comics, contacted me about potentially writing the initial podcast series for Marvel. Uh, this was going to be an audio drama, sort of like a TV show that you would listen to. Mm -hmm. And and so I was just, you know, over the moon about the possibility, not just of kind of being an architect when it came to the the audio uh, landscape of the Marvel Universe, but also writing Wolverine, my favorite character. So I just went, I went nuts. And I laid out in exquisite detail not only what would happen in every single episode of this 10-episode series, but what would happen uh, just holistically, thematically, with the character of Wolverine, and why I personally would be a good fit for writing him. Uh, you know, I talked about uh, series or, or or influences that would be canonical cousins, such as uh, Unforgiven, which is a movie that's all about a, a man who has a history of violence, who has tried to separate himself from humanity to isolate himself, but then is reluctantly drawn back into the fray and has to atone for his sins. Like that was one of the models I wanted to use for Wolverine the long night, which is, you know, if you're into podcasts, you can listen to it anywhere for free. Um, or, or true detective. One of the things that I loved about true detective was the way that, you know, it's an, an, interrogation uh a series of interrogations with unreliable witnesses and and i wanted to use that unreliability to my advantage in this series where these federal agents are our point of view characters and they're sitting down with characters who are you know uh uh fishermen who are crabbers who are loggers who are cult members who are Bartenders, they're interviewing all these different people about a series of murders that have happened in this Alaskan town. And every single one of these characters you come to realize has a secret, uh, has an unreliable point of view. And in the end, that comes to include the federal agents themselves who have been guiding you along. Um, and so you can see how I'm like touching not just on plot, but on, you know, uh, on, on, on like comps. That's what they refer to them as usually in Hollywood. You know, comps being like comparative models, like what you can expect when you're watching the series. Mm -hmm. And also just deep subterranean thematics when it comes to like what I'm trying to get at when it comes to the core of this
0: character. So how different is it for you to write a script versus a prose novel?
1: Uh, Writing a script is... um, (laughs) I would say it's a little more technical than writing a novel. So if you are writing, for instance, a comic script, you have 20 pages. You have five to seven scenes. You have an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, and a D plot. And the B plot becomes the A plot of the next issue. And the C plot becomes the B plot. And you probably have a splash page. And this is a single image page, uh, very common in comics to like broadcast something that is, you know, uh, bombastically exciting. An action scene where like Batman is leaping through a window while tossing, you know, mist pellets uh, as glass shatters everywhere. Uh, and he takes on a villain or it might be a really emotionally resonant moment where like Green Arrow and Black Canary kiss when they've been separated for, you know, 10 issues. They finally come together in this romantic moment. You know, these splash pages, they typically occur once in the first five pages and once in the final two pages. Um, you can see that I'm I'm laying out a design here, a very specific, almost paint by numbers design. And And this is true of screenplays as well. Like something has to happen at page 25 of a feature screenplay. This is the moment when uh the character makes an irrevocable decision, and a door closes behind them. Uh, at page fifteen of a screen feature screenplay is when the inciting incident occurs, and this inciting incident uh you know, is the trouble that that rises up and makes the whole story possible. Uh, as your central character, uh, you know, struggles with some internal conflict that is replicated by this external conflict. Um, and, and I could go on, I could go on for four hours actually about <laughs> these very things, but the I- idea behind it is, is, is recognizable in the literary sphere as well. Uh, Terrence Hayes, the poet talks about the difference between a form poem, a formal poem, like a, uh, uh, you know, a a sonnet or a villanelle, like versus free verse poetry, and he says, like, okay, if you're writing free verse poetry versus form poetry, you know, it's cool if you can break dance, but it is badass if you can break dance in a straight jacket. And writing comics, and writing film, and writing for TV, is like break dancing in a straight jacket. But the thing is that these constraints, these constraints that seemingly chain you in, they can sometimes be inspiring and they have made me a better novelist as a result.
0: how how do you how do you see that in terms of making you a better novelist
1: well there's a few different ways they've made me far more efficient for one like if you only have 20 pages at your disposal you have to be doing multiple things at the same time you have to be contributing to characterization to plot and to theme all at once whereas if you're writing a novel you can be aware of this and still not carry through with it because you're like, well, I have three hundred pages to gallop across, or seven hundred and fifty even. Uh, and that's why most novels are was it flower bear who referred to them as baggy monsters? Uh they can be a bit, you know, uh they can be a bit loose and 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 even suffer from digressions uh they can be rich and entertaining sure but not have like that sort of like laser honed crystalline quality that you can find in in something that's a more strict form so they've made me more efficient and when i talk about these things like okay you got to contribute to characterization and plot at the same time (laughs) this is something you see all the time in comics where it's like here's this awesome fight right where batman is battling the joker but but he is having a conversation at the same time, which is probably completely unrealistic, but you know, you see like some sort of character, these character beats occurring between Batman and Robin and, 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 you know, the villainous force that they're overcoming, whether it's the scarecrow or the Joker. Um, and, and it's because they're so chatty as they're going pow and thwack and boom. Um, and, and so there's, there's that, um, But it's also, I think, made me a better novelist because scripting has, you know, when I talk about comics, they're very bombastic. They're very technicolor. They're loud in every way. And so you can take sort of their loudness and then distill it and come to recognize that the same things are happening in literature in a more subtle fashion. Uh, An example of this. The rogues gallery, in other words, the villains, which I know is a bad word in literary circles, <laughs> but the villains of comics, right? That they are almost always an opposite or a dark mirror of the protagonist. And what I mean by that, just for a second before I go on, uh, you know, sidebar is like, okay, uh, here you have the Joker. The Joker is chaos. Uh, that is an opposite of Batman, who represents law and order, uh, or 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 like Lex Luthor, you know, and and all that he represents, which is just untrammeled greed and such. Like that is an opposite of Superman, who is, you know, good to the core and completely selfless. Um, or there's the Dark Mirror, you know, the Dark Mirror being the character, the villain who is like basically has the same skill set as or background as the main character, uh, but they use it for ill intent. Um, You know, and you look to it, let's let's like branch out into literature or film for a second, and you see the same thing like, Sherlock Holmes, his greatest villain is Moriarty. Moriarty is a dark mirror of Sherlock Holmes with the same dude. Uh, They just, you know, are divergent in their intent. Um, And if you look at film like uh, Indiana Jones, his greatest villain is, uh, in, in the first film anyway, in Raiders, is is Belloc. Belloc is the same dude. You know, they're both scholars. They're both passionate. Uh, but, but you know, Belloc is obsessed with power and, and money. Whereas Indiana Jones is always shaking his fist and saying, that belongs in a museum. <laughs> um, but let's look, you know, like when it comes to like the internal... Wound or core wound or key insight. Those are terms that are thrown around of a character. How they are replicated, externalized in the villain. You know, the, the we all know Batman as a character whose origin comes from Crime Alley. The aptly named Crime Alley. You know, he, we've seen it over and over and over again. He and his parents, Martha and Thomas Wayne, leave the theater, they take a shortcut through Crime Alley, bad idea, and, you know, so a figure comes out of the shadows and rips the pearl necklace off, and a gunshot sounds, and, and little Bruce Wayne, you know, kneels beside his parents' bodies as rain pours down. There you have the core wound of Batman. And, and he wants to bring Law and Order to Gotham City because of that moment. Because of the chaos, uh, the powerlessness of that moment, so you can see a replication of that in the Joker. But let's get a little more complicated for a second here, and just talk about internal faults, and 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 the way in which different rogues can can externalize this. Like, let's say you're writing a Batman story that's about Scarecrow. Scarecrow is a, is a character who, just like Bruce, suffered from Fearful trauma as a child. His father experimented on him with all these fear serums. So they both have these fearful moments, right? But they use them, they're dark mirrors to one another. They use them in different ways. So that's what that story has to be about. Or if you're writing a story about Dr. Freeze, you should be writing a story about Bruce's emotional coldness. Or if you're writing a story about Two-Face, you should be writing a story about whether... Bruce Wayne is the man and Batman is the mask or if Batman is the mask and Bruce Wayne is the mask. Wait, did I say that wrong? I said it quickly. (laughs) You you get the idea. Uh, That's what you should be. Or if it's killer croc, it's about, you know, the animalism, the savagery within Bruce, et cetera. So when you see these things manifested in such an obvious way, it makes you come back to your novels and be like, Oh, um, there's a way in which I can handle this maybe a little bit more deliberately. Or, this is something I'm oftentimes doing with students, and I'm not a professor anymore, but I sometimes teach at Breadlow for a Tin House uh, or Hugo House or, or wherever. You know, I pop in and teach a week long or a day long class. And one thing that I have students do is panel their pages. So I will, for instance, take a chapter from a novel and I'll say, I want you to panel this for me. And they'll go through, and this connects to some of the things that I've you know, when I, when I think about novels, I think about it in terms of vectors, a vertical vector and a horizontal vector. The vertical vector is the emotional vector. The horizontal vector is the narrative progression. So sometimes literary writers tend to be really good about the vertical vector. They're really good about building up, filling up the emotional well. And they're not so good sometimes at like making the plot move. And in genre writers, and I'm, I'm being, I'm, you know, speaking in exaggerated terms here, generalized terms, sometimes they can be more focused on the plot moving forward, the horizontal vector, and less focused on the vertical vector, the emotional. I guess I'm most interested in writers who are somewhere in between. We're doing both at the same time. You know, the Kate Atkinsons, the Susanna Clarks, the Peter Straubs, the Cormac McCarthys, and... And so when you have somebody panel their novel chapter, when you have them try to visually address what's happening, it can lead to some breakthroughs, right? Here are my characters sitting at a table with a jug of whiskey between them, talking. Panel one, page one. Panel two. Page one, they're still at the table with the jug of whiskey, drinking and talking. Then we move forward to page three, panel seven, or maybe even page seven, panel three, and they're still at the table drinking the whiskey. Maybe like well, the jug is a little less full at this point. <laughs> maybe somebody is like smoking a cigarette as well, or going to the window to look out it. But like, there are actually no plot beats happening. Uh. And and so they come to recognize like how little is actually being accomplished. And I'm like, what is actually the point of this scene? It's like, oh well, you know, I want them to realize that they need to get it they wanna they wanna uh, end their friendship or end their marriage or whatever. Like that's the actual beat. But it took twenty pages of horizontal movement, and and I would say the horizontal movement is actually like uh insubstantial and irrelevant. To get there, what if they were doing something else instead, like doing something that was relevant to the plot, and you could triangulate those two things, both the emotional moment, the key emotional moment that is being addressed, and progress the plot as well, Um, because they're whatever, chasing down the serial killer or gutting an elk on the side of a mountain, Um, and then all of a sudden, your work becomes more alive. Uh, and this exercise is completely derived from what I've learned from comics.
0: That's interesting. Um, I'm curious, given that you have um, taught writing, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels?
1: Well, I think rereading is essential. When um, I've learned this, I uh, at my own fault when I was, first you know pursuing an mfa i felt so far behind uh i hadn't read everything that i thought i should have read and so i just burned through it all and as a result i didn't really i didn't really sink in i started to confuse different novels and their characters and events and i hadn't slowed slowed down enough to like really mine the the craft that was and and the technique that was Underway on the page, and and, and I came to a, embrace being a slow reader, and not just a slow reader, but a reader who revisits the work uh, that I admire most. So, I in grad school did something. I I, I would read, for instance, uh, a, uh, a Flannery O'Connor story five, six times, and I chose Flannery O'Connor because I thought that she had very Uh, smart and tight structures to her stories. And so I I read the story six times and emotionally divorce myself from it. You read something six times, you don't feel much anymore. Uh, Instead, you're paying attention to technique. You're understanding the component parts. You're looking underneath the hood. So the seventh time I read it, I would have a yellow legal tablet beside me and I would map out that story paragraph by paragraph beat by beat so paragraph 1 uh character a introduced as jealous and spiteful via dialogue which is every single clyne o'connor character um or uh paragraph 2 uh theme introduced via description of setting you know maybe Maybe it was like the way the mountains were described. Well, it wouldn't be mountains if it was a Cormac. I mean, if it was a Flannery Mm O'Connor story, it would be like a grubby neighborhood or a a rotten house covered in Spanish moss or something. But anyways, the theme would be replicated in the the setting description. So I go through paragraph by paragraph by paragraph, and I'd map it out. And then I would try to write a story that was based on that same skeleton, but bore no resemblance to the original. And that was really helpful. I did it a few times, and it just clicked. I was like, okay, I get it. Uh, and so I use that same technique then on my students. I would have them read, choose a story, read it multiple times, build a blueprint, then write their own story based on that blueprint, and then write an essay for me, explicating every single move they had made. And I would, that would be a presentation they gave to the workshop. So Everybody cites this exercise as, as I do myself as being, you know, uh, maybe, maybe the most helpful thing you could possibly do, uh, for yourself as a writer, you take something that you believe to be masterful. And it could be a scene in a film, you know, if you're trying to write a script, some sort of action scenario or emotionally devastating moment that you think is exquisitely rendered, or it could be a short story. It could be a novel. You watch it multiple times, you read it multiple times, you break it down, you build it back up uh, in your own way. And, uh, and, and this, this, this careful study has been uh, essential to me uh, when it comes to breakthroughs in, in craft and in, in understanding form.
0: That's great advice. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Uh, for novels, one of the best novels that I've read over the past year was Rovers by Richard Lang. And uh, it's a vampire novel. He's normally a crime writer, uh, but he wrote a vampire novel. But it's like the grittiest possible vampire novel you've ever encountered. Um, and it's very literary as well. It's an ensemble piece. It floats from perspective to perspective. and And it really feels like a Steinbeck novel. I know that's from my description so far that sounds insane but it's it's very much got a of mice and men vibe to it um and and i love the way he just reinvents the myth and i love the way he makes vampires not into aspirational beings like aristocratic sparkly skinned uh you know immortals who everybody wants to be but he instead makes them these you know like these scavengers who live in shitty motels and ride in motorcycle gangs throughout the dusty gritty southwest and uh prey upon each other as well as uh marginalized communities it's really something else um so that's a novel that I would, I would recommend to everyone that I've read recently uh when it comes to nonfiction, um you know uh, i recently did a reread of a lot of eric larson stuff because i had to interview him for the miami book fair so he's you know, wonderful because he manages to make nonfiction not boring. Uh which I oftentimes <laughs> find myself a little sleepy eyed when I'm reading like whatever, the latest presidential biography or whatever. Um and 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 you know, his his books they read like novels. Um uh but you know, this is the boring response. I love Sapiens and I, I reread that recently and it just one of the reasons I love that book is it just gives you like a very measured, uh, wide view of humanity that makes the perils and anxieties of the present moment seem a lot less nerve wracking. Um, when you look at history as a whole, when you look at humanity as a whole, as a whole you just, you understand the wheels of time grinding away in a very predictable fashion. And I find that assuring myself.
0: Interesting. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels, your comic books, and your podcast projects?
1: They can find me um, on all the obnoxious social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where, you know, I'm occasionally dropping the occasional like craft or technique bomb, but also posting pictures of my Dumb dog and you know, snow laden woods here in Minnesota or Conor McGregor or whatever. And, uh, and I've got a website, benjaminpercy.com, that I occasionally venture over to and supply some updates. So, yeah, you can,
0: you can find me in the digital nowhere lands. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Benjamin Percy, author of the new novel, The Unfamiliar Garden. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy at your independent bookstore. And Ben, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me on, and good luck to everybody
0: out there with your own writing. Great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Red Moon by Benjamin Percy, written and read, by Benjamin Percy. Available from Hachette Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold.
1: He cannot sleep. All night, even with his eyes closed, Patrick Gamble can see the red numbers of the clock as they click forward. Two, three-thirty, four-ten, now four-thirty, but he is up before the alarm can blare. He snaps on the light and pulls on the blue jeans and black t-shirt folded in a pile, ready for him, ready for this moment, the one he has been dreading for the past two months. His suitcase yawns open on the floor. He tosses his toiletry kit into it after staggering down the hall to the bathroom and rubbing his armpits with a deodorant stick and brushing his teeth, foaming his mouth full of mint toothpaste. He stands over his suitcase, waiting, as if hoping hard enough would make his hopes come true. Waiting until his raised hopes fall. Waiting until he senses his father in the bedroom doorway, turning to look at him when he says, It's time. He will not cry. His father has taught him that, not to cry, and if he has to, he has to hide it. He zips the suitcase shut and drags it upright and stares at himself in the closet mirror, his jaw stubbled with a few days' worth of whiskers, his eyes so purple with sleeplessness they look like flowers that have wilted in on themselves, before heading down the hall to the living room where his father is waiting for him. The truck idles in the driveway. The air smells like pine and exhaust. Sunlight has started to creep into the night sky, but only a faint glow, a false dawn. The suitcase chews its wheels through the gravel, and Patrick struggles two-handed with its weight. When his father tries to help him, Patrick says, Don't, and heaves it up into the bed of the truck. Sorry, his father says, and the word hangs in the air until Patrick slams shut the tailgate. They climb into the truck and on the bench seat, Patrick finds a peanut butter toast sandwich wrapped in a paper towel, but his stomach feels like a bruised fist and he can't imagine choking down more than a bite. They follow the long gravel drive with their headlights casting twisting shadows through the tunnel of trees. They are alone on a county road and then surrounded by traffic on I-580 heading south toward San Francisco, half the sky full of stars the rest of it blurred by soot-black clouds occasionally pulsing with gold-wire lightning. His father says he hopes the weather clears, hopes his flight goes off without a hitch, and Patrick says yes. He hopes so, too. You've got Neil's number? Yeah. In case things get weird with your mother? Yeah. Not that I think they will, but in case they do, he's a three-hour drive away. I know. The sky lightens to a plum color, and with the sun and the stars and the clouds at war in the sky, Patrick can't help but think that's how things are around here, divided, like the landscape, ocean and forest and desert and city, clouds and sun and fog, like so many worlds crushed into one. It is another half hour before the sun crests the horizon and injures his eyes to look at, His father holds the steering wheel like it isn't going where he wants it to go unless he muscles it hard. The two of them say nothing because there is nothing to say. It has all been said. Patrick does not want to go, but that is irrelevant given the fact that he must. That goes for them both. They must.